Next week is the start of a new year. I don't know if you're ready for that or not, but it doesn't matter. It happens. And as we begin uh, 2020, uh, we'll be finishing, we'll go back and finish the sermon series that we stopped at the beginning of Advent. We'll finish the book of Acts, uh, which will take us through February, I believe, where uh, Acts is the account of the coming order and, and direction uh, and shape of the church. Uh, to pair with that, like um, Caleb mentioned earlier, we are going to use the first few months to give ourselves to study when the church was at its most disorganized um, by way of contrast. So we're going to look at the book of Judges in our adult education hour. If you haven't connected with an adult education class or you haven't been consistent in your attendance, um, I'd like to encourage you, uh, not to guilt you, but to encourage you uh, to make a spiritual resolution of sorts to join in and be a part of one. Uh, be a part of fellowshipping and loving God with your mind. It is an important uh, component of what we offer. And so I would like to ask you to, to make that a priority in the coming year. Uh, Judges 19 is the darkest hour of Hebrew history. This chapter is what's known as a text of terror. There are four others in the Old Testament. It's as bad as it gets for the Lord's people. This grotesque story will unfold from one horrific scene to the next, each more offensive and gory than the previous. But this is God's word. It's living and it's active and it's useful for building up as well as for correction and reproof and it is good. This is our good father revealing himself to us and revealing ourselves to us. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ from Judges 19. We'll pick up in verse 11, although I will refer back to the earlier uh, verses in the sermon this morning. When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over. And the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites, and he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I came. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me 
and your female servant and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet, and they ate and drank. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my, my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems best to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. And he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it. Take counsel and speak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, this is terrifying. This is uh, hell on earth. It's hard to know uh, how to make sense of this passage and others like it in light of the salvation you came to purchase and provide and share. And so would you send your spirit in abundance this morning to open eyes and open ears and reawaken hearts. Would you reassure us this morning that you are good, that you are kind, that you are gentle, and that you are abundant in your generosity as you give those to your people? Would you expose our sin and show us our Savior? Do that this morning, our Father, and receive the thanks and praise of a grateful people. Amen. So Gina, sweet Gina, takes great notes takes great sermon notes. She's almost always the first one that comes up to either Jeremy or myself or Ethan with effusive praise. More than once, she has stolen my sermon notes so that she can share it with friends. Gina this morning came up and said, hey, I got all ready, and then I read your passage, and I grabbed my purse and was ready to leave because I don't want to hear that sermon. I said, I don't want to preach that sermon. She said, well, you picked it. Why? It's not assigned to you. Who, who, who picks that? I did pick it. I don't want to preach it, but I did pick it because we're going to go through Judges. 
And if we don't study passages like this that God gives us, then we are missing treasure that he has for us. It's difficult and it's hard and it hurts. But somehow Jesus says, this is my word given to you that you might know me and follow. And so we're doing it. We're eating broccoli this morning. Nobody likes it. In his book, No Country for Old Men, one of my favorite authors, Cormac McCarthy, tells the story of an overproud West Texan character. He finds a large stash of drug money in the desert, and in his plot to keep it all for himself and make a life, he crosses paths with one of the most unsavory villains in modern fiction. This emotionless sociopath, Anton Chigurh, leaves a swath of destruction in his wake wherever he goes. And we're introduced also to a sheriff near the end of his career who's constantly trying to do the right thing amid fears of not reaching his rest and retirement. Basically, what Cormac McCarthy does throughout the book is wipe all delusions of innocence and worth from everyone. We don't get a hero. We get people that are slightly less bad, but there's no hero in it. Every time you start to root for one character's success, the author exposes his sin that drives that person. Now, McCarthy is an atheist. He's a nihilist. And he writes total depravity better than anyone that I've ever found. He gets what this passage is preaching, that no one is innocent. The book of Judges was written as the account of the Israelization of Canaan. It's the story of the people. They've been set free from Egypt. They've gone through the Exodus. They've wandered for 40 years. Now Joshua has led them into the promised land. And Judges is what happens when they begin to put down roots, as they begin to dwell in the land. They were tasked with bringing the grace and glory of God to bear in this dark and, and dangerous place called Canaan. They were to Israelize Canaan. It's the story of the people from the death of Joshua until the anointing of Saul as the first king. And so the entire book of Judges is, in a sense, an apologetic for the monarchy. It's a reasoned defense for a strong and central leader to dispel the chaos that went before. So even when we read the heroes in Judges, Samson, Othniel, and others, the heroes of this story are riddled with sin and are moral failures, almost 100% of them. And if the whole book has been set up to make that point to God's wayward people, these last chapters, 17 through 21, ramp it up. It, it, it echoes resoundingly again and again and again. And if you have a, a Bible or you want a uh, device, you can look at chapter 17, verse 6. It's the opening of the bookend to close this work, the book of Judges. And, and it has this refrain. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And now you can look, if you flip over or page down, to the final verse in the book. Now, everything that happens 
in the closing five chapters is the strongest argument that the author of Judges can make for why a king is better than no king. So it's bookended in 17.6 and 21.25. In, in those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this is ancient Hebrew political propaganda. But it's a lie. It's a lie that's been spun to make a selfish point. The need for a king sets the stage for our passage this morning, but it's important, it's vitally important to remember this. Israel wasn't without a king. She had a king. She was without a king that she was proud of on the international stage. She was without a king that she would love and submit to. She was without a king that she enjoyed. Her king, though, was God himself. And she despised him with every chance she was given. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 7 through 9, God said, uh, says as much. That from the moment their king redeemed them out of slavery in Egypt, they have fought to free themselves from his grasp. He gave them life and they ran to death. He gave them a regal code for shared life in his kingdom and they tossed it aside for idols and better judgment. Finally, he gave them this land as a laboratory of grace to spill out into the nations, but instead they painted themselves in the camouflage of the evil inhabitants of the land, and they blended into the background of every gathered people. They no longer loved their king. They no longer fought for holiness. Instead, they sought power, greed, and influence, and so they hated the Lord. And that's where we pick up the story in Judges 19. There's no king, there's no righteousness, there's no community, and there's no security. It's every man and every woman for him and herself. And this excessive emptiness is horrifying. It's supposed to be horrifying. A concubine cheats on her husband. That's what we didn't read, but that's the opening of it. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning. He took a wife, or took to himself a concubine, and his, verse 2, and his concubine was unfaithful to him. She went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem. Now, a concubine was sort of a second-tier wife, kind of a half-wife. They didn't pay a dowry to initiate the covenant of marriage. They didn't have any stipulation for divorce. And the concubine was frequently of lower social status than the husband. To the concubine, the relationship was simply a way of procuring social security. She would at least be taken care of by the man. She might even get to have kids from him, and hopefully those daughters could be sold um, into marriage, and she would have money that way, or sons that would uh, care for her and, and feed and protect her. We're not even two verses into the story, and already everything seems off kilter. The Levite shouldn't be traveling alone in remote regions. Levites should, should be serving the people in a community. He should take a wife and put down roots as a model of the Lord's holiness and gentleness. But he's wandering. He's a, he's a cat about town. He doesn't extend himself and his wallet for a wife. He just needs a, a plaything 
that will get him through some cold, lonely nights. And then on top of that, we have the dishonor and unfaithfulness of the concubine. And so she's, she goes home to dad's house for four months. She's there for four months before this lazy Levite travels to fetch her back. The text tells us that he had good intentions to go and woo her back to himself, if you read that early on in verses 3 and 4, but we don't have any records of their discussions. But what we do have recorded for us in that earlier passage that we didn't read is five days of lounging with his father-in-law, eating and drinking all day long. So I think there's a couple things set up for us in this picture if we take time and, and marinate and think about it. We, we see from the father-in-law what true hospitality in that culture should look like because we're gonna get that hospitality rug pulled out from under us in a minute. But also, secondly, we should continue to pick up on the fact that this Levite does not take his commitments seriously. And that's something meant to convict the Hebrew audience of judges. And I think it should convict us too. There are innumerable benefits to being united to God in Christ. We could start listing those and we wouldn't end um, for centuries. And those benefits are intended to accompany a life of struggle and a life of service. But the history of the church, the church in the Old Testament, the church in the New Testament, ancient and modern history, the history of the church is filled with examples of our failure in the face of wealth and ease. The church doesn't thrive in safety. We grow lazy and selfish like the Levite. Meanwhile, if you consider the church in places like Africa or the Middle East or China, the church in China has been in the news a lot lately. Christians there are threatened, they're jailed, they're killed, and the church flourishes. Following our Savior is serious business, and the commitments that we make by professing our faith in Him should daily impact our lives. But far too often, the emptiness of our culture is reflected in the emptiness of people of faith. And so after a fifth day of doing nothing, the Levite decides to head back home in the late afternoon, which is a weird time to start traveling. As the day is nearing nightfall, they're closing in on Jebus, the city that will become Jerusalem later on. And the servant recommends that they stop there for the night and take their rest. But the Levite, oh, he'll have none of that. His response is eerily foreshadowing what lies ahead for them. He's saying, no, 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 we can't stay in a city of foreigners. We can't be in a city that doesn't know the Lord. How could we be sure to share in their community and in their security? How could we trust their righteous standards of hospitality? No, no, no. We have to go to a town of our own people where we can be taken care of. And so they make their way to the Benjaminite city of Gibeah as night falls. Now, again, if you reread this passage, and really nobody wants to, but if you reread the passage and mark where the sun is, it sets in Gibeah. It's an artistic ploy of the author. It's very uh, well done because we see as the sun goes down, everything is dark. Here in one of the cities of the men of Israel, 
There is no light. The townspeople they pass turn away at just the right moment to avoid eye contact. Every time hope of the next passerby arises, they are ignored until the band makes it all the way into the town square ready to camp out in the open air by the shared well, likely. There is a subversive evil in shattered community. doesn't feel true but it is we all of us are terrified of being mutilated like this concubine certainly of being sexually violated we ought to be horrified about mistreating and losing our partners in marriage but I bet none of us shudder with offense when the text centers in on the absence of the faithful community of God's people we are not scared as a church of lack of community and we should be terrified of it. The author wants us tense with the expectation that evil is afoot. And so just like when you're watching a horror movie and the, the, the teenagers are going to run into an abandoned house and you want to scream at them, don't go in there, you moron. That's the way we should feel here. We should be on the edge of our seat with ominous music playing in the background. He wants us to see this as the next deadly ripple in a series of broken covenant promises, and we don't. It's deeply offensive that no one extends himself to serve these Hebrew travelers in a Hebrew city. This is excessive emptiness on full display and the sort of people who would allow such a gross violation of cultural norms, uh, that sort of people, there's no telling how twisted their souls are or what sins they're capable of. If they won't welcome you as a Hebrew into their Hebrew home, you don't know what can happen next. That's the way we should feel. Now we have this clear and ultra-disturbing view of sin, the Levite along with his concubine and his servant are finally given quarter by another nameless, faceless character in the story. But as it turns out, he's from the same hometown as the Levite, Ephraim. He pronounces this blessing of peace to the travelers and takes them in. And they probably uh, visited for a while. Of, oh, you know, what high school did you go to? Oh, I went to there. Oh, you know, things are better back home than they are here in the city, they're talking as people do when they find out they're from the same place and they're freshening up, they're relaxing over dinner and drinks and all hell breaks loose outside. And it doesn't take much to nudge us reading Judges 19 to think of Genesis 19 as the angels came into Lot's home. You're supposed to feel that way. You're supposed to have that bell go off because that is the worst city in history, Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, this city filled with Hebrews is just as bad, if not worse. That's, that's what the connection there. This is the declaration and the judgment of the author that Israel is now no better, no different than the most depraved city they could imagine. The call to Israel, remember, the call to Israel going into Canaan was to scrub it, to clean it, to wipe out every living thing so that their hearts wouldn't turn aside from loving and trusting their Redeemer. But they didn't. 
They didn't do what they were charged to do. And instead of changing the land to reflect the holiness and purity of their God, the land had infected and poisoned them in every way. And Judges 19 is the period. It's the end. This is the canonization of Israel. They went into Israelized Canaan, and what happened was they got canonized. The men of the city want to ravage the Levite, which is less about sex and more about publicly shaming him. The host, like Lot in Genesis 19, offers up his own virgin daughter and the wayward concubine. And in the blink of an eye, somebody unlatches the door and tosses them a worthless plaything with which to amuse themselves. And the text doesn't make it clear which man it was that put the concubine out. And again, I think that's intentional. I, I think it's intentional that he's left unnamed. And these, these worthless men take her and abuse her until the shade of death was closing in and the sun was just rising. And as the sun comes up, we see our Levite walking out to stretch his legs. He's nursing his first cup of coffee. He's planning their final approach on the journey home. This Levite who went out after his half-wife to speak tenderly to her and call her back into community and security steps over her now to feel the morning light on his face and coldly and carelessly commands, come on, we're burning daylight, let's get going. Her motionless body lays unresponsive to any such command, and as the darkest encounter of Israelite history draws to a close, we see this holy man mutilating his bride and calling the rest of the Hebrew nation to gather in judgment against the men of Gibeah. And the hypocrisy reaches its pinnacle with the outrage of all who saw it. Has such a thing ever been done since we came up out of Egypt? Where was that outrage for all the sinful steps that led to this point? Nobody cared about the lack of community. Nobody cared about lack of legitimate marriage. Nobody cared about lack of serious commitments of faith. Nobody even cared about rape and murder. But now the Israelites are completely shocked about pieces of a concubine. And this is what sin looks and feels like. It's repulsive and it's horrifying. And it grows out of the soil of moral individualism and self-centeredness. There was no king and everyone did what was right by them. It's telling, like I said, that the author um, never uh, fingers the individual who killed the concubine. Without giving a name or an individual, he absolutely identifies her killer. It was her. Her unfaithfulness and unwillingness to break covenant that killed her. And it was him, a falsely kind husband that loved her when it was easy, but not when it required sacrifice that killed her. It was them, a city of vile abusers that killed her. And it was an unrighteous nation that had no concept of holiness or peace that killed her. It was everyone. Everybody killed this woman. The, the author intentionally leaves all these characters nameless and faceless. The people had lived this way, and that's his point exactly. 
They had ignored the image of God in one another. They had devoured one another in their independent selfishness. They viewed everyone as an object to fulfill their own desires. They were kingless. They were wretched, destructive individuals, and that's what he's saying. This is one Levite and every Levite. This is one heartless town and every town. One fearful, unholy host was everyone that hated covenant community. In fact, from the final bookend chapters, from 17 to 21, only one individual's name is given. And it's provided here at the end as a shocking point of reference. Remember, we're being pushed to be terrorized for our lack of a king, our lack of righteousness, our lack of community, and our lack of security. That's the book is pushing us to feel this way. And in chapter 20, verse 28, we read the name Phineas, who's the grandson of Aaron, which means that all of this unimaginable evil arose within a single generation of coming into the land. Depravity sets in quicker than we expect, and it mars everything beyond recognition. But what if we had a king? Without God as our king, we either seek to make decisions for ourselves or we seek out someone that we crown and allow them to lead us and rule for us. And in that sense, we find glimpses of ourselves here. We are a covenant-breaking bride, leaving town for old comforts. We are a half-hearted Levite, calloused and afraid of our high calling. We are a town and entire nation of self-righteous haters of community. We are the worthless fellows of Gibeah who know nothing about shame to get our own wants met. We are throughout this passage in, our, in all our broken depravity. And they longed for Saul and eventually they got David and that derails along the way as well. But Christ, we've just celebrated Advent. Christ is our real and coming king. Jesus is all our perfect righteousness and undefiled purity. Our Savior has called us into community with himself and his church to joyfully and faithfully live in him. And his death is our security. What happens outside the door in Judges 19 is a snippet of hell. It's terror, it's suffering, it's unimaginable torture, it's searing pain, and it's even death. And when you go out that door to face your own private consequences, this is what awaits you. And when our sin was kicking the door in, demanding us to come out so that it could have its way with us, Jesus, our great high priest, ran out in our stead. He endured on the cross in his death, all that rightfully belonged to us as our loving husband. The good news is the declaration that Jesus is our king. He said so himself in Matthew 28, as he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's the king. And because Jesus is king, I can now know that he is, in fact, putting everything to rights. Jesus is king, and so I can make sense of hope and faith that all is enslaved will be set free and that all that is broken 
will be perfectly remade. The gospel is that Jesus is our righteousness. All the darkness that I hate in me is being swallowed up in his perfection and purity. And he's always calling me to love him and listen to his kindness poured out in my sanctification. He's kept all righteousness for us and he's crafting all righteousness in us. The good news is that Jesus is our king. He's our righteousness and the gospel also continues to say that Jesus is our community. He is our fellowship with one another. The finished work of the Savior is to bring us to the Father in joy and in love. And he's given us the spirit of that holy community that his church might hear reflect it now and today. Finally, the gospel, the good news, is the abounding grace of security. Jesus is our peace. This unsurpassed, unimaginable peace that passes all understanding. The death and resurrection of the Lord shouts back to us, to us who are huddled inside the house, terrified and ashamed. But the death and resurrection says, you can come out now, it's safe. I beat the enemies and they're gone. The sun is risen and it will never set again for you. There's no longer anyone to threaten us. One good friend of mine, a mentor of sorts, says, the resurrection of Jesus is the worst possible news for his enemies. And all that strength and all that security is ours in him. Our king, our righteousness, our community, and our security. And so look at your Savior again this morning through the darkness of Judges 19. See him going out the door of death and barging back in to lead us into his life. See him afresh and anew and worship him for all that he is. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me? There's a lot of darkness and, and death and sorrow and evil in this passage, and it dwells in us too. It dwells in us, but it's dying in your resurrection. Our death is dying, and we pray for your Holy Spirit to teach us to mock it, to make fun of that sin which so easily entangles us as we echo the Apostle Paul, oh death, where's your victory? Where's your sting? You got nothing. Remind us of the strength of Christ, the bravery of Christ to go out for us and endure what belonged to us, to give us this gift of grace that's ours in him. We pray that you would renew us individually, that you would renew your church, that you would renew the message of Christ in a dark and dangerous world. We pray that you would shine through us and that Christ would be known and claimed as a God of grace and glory. It's in his name we ask and pray. Amen.